This is the Good Judge Men Podcast. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another session of the Good Judgment Podcast. I am Wade Paget, And I'm Tane Kell, and together we will be your hosts. The Good Judgment Podcast is designed for judges, lawyers, and others who are interested in judges and the law and procedure that occurs in a courtroom. Now, our focus is on Georgia law and Georgia judges. We normally address issues dealing with substantive law and procedure, but occasionally we have some other topics that we think might be of interest for judges to consider. For those who have been listening to our podcast, we want to thank you and hope that you'll tell somebody else. And don't forget, folks, if you want to contact us, you can send us an email to goodjudgepod at gmail.com, or you can follow us on the web at goodjudgepod.com. All right, folks, welcome back to the Good Judgment Podcast. I'm Wade Padgett. And I'm Tane Kell. And we have, once again with us today, our good friend and friend of the podcast. What did you say we are going to call it? FOPC? Yeah. FOPC, friend of the podcast, Judge Keith Wood from Cherokee County Probate Court. How are you doing, Keith? Fantastic. Glad to be here. We were actually going to call it FOP, but the Fraternal Order of Police sent a cease and desist, and we had to stop doing that. Okay, so maybe not. Anyway. Um, so there's this thing, Judge Wood, that we come across in Superior Court. Literally, I have one of these right now. And I am very grateful for you being willing to talk about the compromise of doubtful claims of minors or others. And, and, and I'm thinking of minors primarily, but I'm assuming that all of those same issues still apply if you settle a claim for someone who's incapacitated. Oh, so now it becomes clear. Wade invited Keith to resolve a problem Wade was having in court. Okay, it's very clear now, Keith. We'll have a hearing next week. Welcome to help Wade. I do accept appointments out of county as long as somebody pays mileage. (laughs) We can do that. All right, well, go on. All right, so let's talk about it. So so these uh, settlement of doubtful claims, you... It could be for a child. It could also be for an incapacitated adult. True? It, it, it can be for an incapacitated adult, provided they have a conservator. Okay. Now, do you have to have a conservator going into it, or is it something that you can do as a part of the process? Hey, that my, my, I mean, my, somebody might have become incapacitated because of the thing that caused the, the, the lawsuit. Correct. I mean, what, what you can sometimes have is you can have, you can have a, a petition for a conservative conservator of an adult ward and as part of one of those things that they may want authority to do is to compromise a claim as a far as as a part of the petition which means the court could then inquire into the nature of that compromise so so let's back up just in case some of the folks who are who are out there don't do personal injury law or something like that or haven't done it in the past so the way this comes up frequently is let's say you have a minor child uh, there's an automobile accident. Maybe one of the parents is killed. The child is 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 injured in the accident as well. And there's someone who comes along who's representing this child and maybe may, maybe files a lawsuit on their behalf or does something uh, to initiate a that, that initiates a, a settlement or a compromise of that claim. Correct. That's the point at which the court may become involved to determine whether that's the appropriate thing to do. Is that how that works? Correct. Obviously, a minor child, just like with a, a person who has a, a guardian or a conservator, they don't have the ability to resolve that claim on their own. They don't, they're not competent to do so. So what has to happen is there's a party that has to come in and petition to do that, uh, 
There's not always a requirement to do a petition if there is a natural guardian. This doesn't apply to adult conservators. It only applies to minors. If there is a natural guardian, they can compromise the claim without becoming a conservator if the value of that claim, the net settlement value of that claim is $15,000 or less. So they wouldn't necessarily have to become a conservator. But if the gross value, and I can define those terms, but the, if the gross value of the claim is above $15,000, you always have to have a compromise claim file. Whether they have to become a conservator or not is going to have to do with how much money is actually going into the conservatorship. All right. So I think we better step back again okay. because we've kind of gone deeply down a hole that we haven't started. Let me give you a scenario. You tell me, do we have to have a conservator slash guardian? None of these are really guardianships. These are conservatorships. Conservatorships, okay. correct. If, I, if the child had a parent alive and was injured and the amount of the claim, net amount to the child would be under $15,000, do they have to have a conservatorship? Right. 15000 or under, no. Okay. Parent alive, child has a claim, net value over 15000 do you have to have a conservatorship? Yes. If the child is going to hold greater than $15,000, you have to have a conservatorship. So it's really not related so much to whether the parent's alive or not. It's just, it's really amount, it, it looks more at is a minor child in the minor scenario going to receive more or less than $15,000? Correct. During the time of their minority. Right. Correct. Let me clarify one other thing though. Let's say there is no parent. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe it, maybe a, you know it's a, a situation where the you know grandparent has custody or, or something along those lines, and the amount is less than fifteen thousand dollars. Because you don't have a parent, do you do you in that circumstance have to have a, a, a conservatorship? You do. You're going to have to have somebody who can petition to compromise. That's, That's going to have to be a conservator. Okay. Thank you. So now we've gotten the claim settled. But we know that we've agreed on a number. I guess we haven't had it settled. We've agreed on a number. Me and me being the representative of the minor and the insurance company, we've agreed on a number that we think is fair. So we've now got to come to probate court and ask you to approve it. That is correct. And that's I, I think that's some a, a misconception that maybe some attorneys have about this process is whatever you agree to with the insurance company, whatever you think the case is worth, it's always subject to scrutiny by the court pursuant to the compromise claim. So we always have kind of final say-so in situations where the case is before us on a compromise claim. When you look at whether that amount is reasonable or not, is there a criteria that you have to look at, or is it just common sense? I would say for the most part, it's going to be common sense. And that's, you know, I guess part of the benefit I have is I did some personal injury work when I practiced law. So I have my I have my own criteria in my head about what I think is an appropriate settlement of a case or not. But there's a number of factors cer certainly that courts look at. You know, what's what's the amount of the attorney fees? Is that a normal amount of attorney fees? Um, what is the what is the amount of the medical expenses? Does that seem reasonable? What are the extent of the injuries? What are the liability issues? If it's a case that has an iffy liability question. You may see a value of a claim be less than, you know, maybe if the, it was more clear cut than that. So there's a number of things that can affect what a court considers as being, a, you know, a reasonable settlement. But ultimately, that's the guidepost, reason, reasonableness of the settlement. That is correct. Now, Tane, the one thing that I think everybody needs to sort of remember about this, or, and I'll be honest with you, it caught me off guard a couple of weeks ago. 
if a lawsuit was filed, and Keith can help me with this, mm -hmm. if there was a lawsuit filed and the case was, they agreed on a settlement for a minor, then it doesn't necessarily have to go back to probate court. The, the trial court that oversaw the case can also approve or not approve the settlement and handle the issues relating to conservatorship, correct? The court where the case is pending, if it's state court, superior court, wherever, they can approve the settlement. They have the authority to approve the settlement. I can't touch it. Probate court can't touch it if it's in another court. Only way we can touch it is if the parties agree and the court agrees that it can be dismissed for the purposes of it coming to probate court. However, if a if it's in the state court or superior court, what's going to have to happen is if it falls into the situation where there's going to need to be a conservator, the conservator has to be appointed by the probate court. Okay, so, so we can approve the settlement, but we don't necessarily have to keep up with the annual returns and the bonded and all of those other things that you were talking about earlier conserving conservators. You don't want that trouble. <laughs> no, oh, I promise you. <laughs> oh, I promise you. But but let's let's talk about that scenario. So a case comes to superior court, <clears throat> it's a personal injury case, it gets tried in the superior court in there and, and let's say um, you know, on the eve of trial as often happens, um, there's an award of uh, or I'm not an award. There's a, a settlement in the amount of a million dollars. And you've got a 14-year-old child. Uh, parents are, are still living. They've brought the lawsuit on behalf of the child. Now you have a 14-year-old child who essentially has a million dollars in the bank uh, that's been awarded to them. It's been approved by the Superior Court. They're going to need a conservator, though, still, because they need someone who's responsible to oversee their their use of that money and, and what happens with that money until they become of age, correct? Correct. I mean, typically you're going to need that conservatorship. I would say even before, if the amount, the, the net settlement amount is going to be greater than that $15,000, you are going to need a conservator in order to, you know, consent to that settlement, even though it's the superior court in that case that has the authority to approve that settlement, mm -hmm. because we know it's going to be over the threshold amount. We're going to need a conservator to do that. Very good. Now, I know that there was something about structured settlements for minors, that, that, that if there's a structure where the child's actually not going to get the money until after they are of majority age, that that changes this. Can you talk a little bit about that? Absolutely. So a structured settlement is simply where someone's, for lack of a better term, buying an insurance policy on this money, where they're investing it, and the money's not going to pay out until after the child turns 18. What you'll see a lot of times is a child, to use your million-dollar example, if the child's going to be getting a million dollars, but the million dollars is all going to be put into a structured settlement, that's deducted from the gross amount, and that brings your amount down below the 15000 threshold so that you then don't have to become a conservator in that case because the child's not going to have any money while he's under the age of 18. Mm -hmm. So it does change the dynamics of whether or not you need a conservator. You still need the approval of the court to settle the case, though. So if a case is settled that is a hybrid, mm -hmm. so much in the structure, so much in cash, if the net to the child is over 15, they still need a conservatorship. They still need a conservatorship, correct. What if it's all structured? Do they have to come get your approval? Let's say it never went to lawsuit. Let's say that it was lawyers sending demand letters and insurance companies responding and they settled the case. If it's a pure structure where there's no money being received by the child under the age of 18, correct? 
does that need to still get approved by you? As long as the amount, the gross amount, the total amount of the settlement is above 15000 you're still going to have to come and petition under a compromise. Now, again, if the amount that's going to be going to the child before he turns 18 is 15000 or less, the parent doesn't have to become a conservator, but they still have to file that petition. To get approval of the compromise of the claim. Approval of the compromise and approval of the structure. Okay. Because I've seen bad structures before. Oh, yeah. And so the trial judge can do it if it's a lawsuit, but in a non-lawsuit, they still have to come see you. In a non-lawsuit or whether it's a lawsuit and the, the parties agreed to dismiss it for purposes of coming to the probate court. Makes sense. So once these things are filed, what's the time frame? Do you have to wait 30 days? Do you have to publish in the paper and serve people? And You, you typically don't. What So if you have a case where there's going to be a conservator, they file a petition for conservatorship, they file a petition for compromise claim, because those kind of go hand in hand if if there's going to need to be a conservator. Typically what a court's going to do is they're going to appoint a guardian ad litem, a a third-party person to kind of review everything to make sure it's okay. You could even do that just if it's a straight compromise itself. You can appoint a guardian ad litem to kind of look things over and be kind of the arm of the court to make sure everything looks okay. But as far as, you know, serving people, obviously, if there's a conservatorship, you're going to be serving parties on that because in order to establish a conservatorship, you got to give notice to people. Less so on a compromise. There isn't really a provision for giving notice to people when you read the compromise statute. But typically, that's why you'd appoint a guardian ad litem just to have some other eyes laid on it. Again, the court's reviewing the settlement itself. So that's another set of eyes looking at it. So, but it's not any set amount of time that has to pass. You don't have to wait 30 days. You don't have to wait 10 days. You could do it tomorrow if if everything else could get done that needs to get done. That is correct. I mean, obviously, if you have a if you have a guardian ad litem, they're going to have to have time to give an answer or whatever. But as far as someone filing a compromise today, let's take the example of someone filing a compromise. There's no conservatorship, but they have to have it approved by the court. You know, assuming the court's not appointing a guardian ad litem, you're not waiting any specific period of time in order to set it down and have a hearing on it. You can and, do it just when you want to. And what's the trigger for the guardian ad litem being appointed or not? Well, it to me, it really depends on the court. You know, we don't always necessarily appoint a guardian ad litem, but there's cases where we want somebody else to lay eyes on it. Some courts appoint them in every case. That's, in, I think, within the discretion of the judge. I think it's probably similar to how we appoint guardians ad litem in, um, in domestic cases. That's probably true. Um, so when, you, when you're looking at the reasonableness of the fees, you, you talked about that a while ago. Most of these cases that are where this is involved would be a contingency. Correct. And do you have, I know nobody has any hard and fast rules because that would be a non-exercise of discretion to have a hard and fast rule. But as a general proposition, if a, if the contingency fee is a 40% fee or even a 50% fee and the case doesn't go to trial, do you have thoughts on that? Not necessarily rules, but thoughts on that? I think it always is going to depend on the nature of the case itself. If you have someone who is representing a minor child and let's say a medical malpractice case, there's a lot more work that goes into a medical malpractice case than you would have in a soft tissue, you know, car wreck case. Those are cases that you're generally going to see a higher fee contract for, setting aside whether it's a minor or not, just in general, because the type of the nature of the work, the nature of what you have to do in order to make those cases is going to be much more um, labor intensive for the attorney. When you're talking about, you know, 
soft tissue personal injury cases, typically what we see is a one-third contract. And I think that that's, I don't want to say that's the industry standard because I, you know, that may have changed since I last did it, but that's typically what, you know, I don't want to say I'm always going to be okay with, but that's one, that's typically what we see and seems, I think that's a fairly reasonable. Sure. As a judge who's looking at these settlements, what are, what are the other factors that you're looking at? I mean, I'm sure there are a number of things that go into make it a determination as to whether or not it seems reasonable and in the best interests. You know, again, a lot of it's going to be, you know, what are the policy limits? What does the defendant look like? Because what you sometimes have, and I've had this on a number of occasions, you'll have a child that's in the backseat of grandma's car. Grandma's in a wreck. Grandma's at fault. Is that a party that you're likely to sue as a you know, parent of that child, you know, that, that can change how you maybe evaluate that claim. If you have a, you know, a defendant that has no money. I mean, these are the kind of same factors that you evaluate if you were representing an adult client and you were the plaintiff's counsel. Absolutely. I mean, you're, you, you, when you're looking at that case, the value of that case is something that, that goes is a factor. And if I make a demand on an insurance company, and I say, I think this case is worth, you know, X amount of dollars. A lot of those things, a lot of those factors are, what I'm basing my demand on and then adding twice that. And you said you did some defense work in practice, Tane. Yes. I mean, these are the kind of the same things you look at when you evaluate a case. Absolutely. I mean, you know, you were always going to look at how complex is the case, uh, what are the, what's the severity of the injuries, how much are their medicals, all of those types of things in order to evaluate whether this looks like it's a fair settlement or, you know, whether it's something that somebody looks like they're settling cheap you know, and it and it doesn't really seem like they've been willing to really fight for the rights of the person that they were representing. So, Keith, this sounds like it is there's no special criteria. It's the same criteria you would use as a lawyer when evaluating a case or Correct. an insurance adjuster or whatever. Correct. I mean, I think that's the way that I've always tried to look at these cases when I'm evaluating whether the whether the settlement itself is appropriate. One thing that we'll sometimes see, and it makes you a little nervous, is a a self-represented parent settling their child's personal injury case, and the person doing all the paperwork is the insurance company's lawyer. And so, you know, those kind of get maybe an extra level. I won't say okay. extra level of scrutiny, but you're you're kind of looking at it from a different perspective in that case. Well, they they have their you know the child's best interests at heart too. I'm quite certain they do. <laughs> Absolutely, it's never about the money. Um, but like all of the things, like litigation expenses, all that gets considered when determining the net to the child and or the ward, and whether that's a reasonable amount. Correct. I mean, I think that, you know, if an attorney if an attorney has to expend money in order to pursue that claim, and a lot of times you see that with like getting medical records or if you're having to uh, get statements from physicians or something like that, you're going to expend money in order to make that claim, to, so to speak. And so all of those are legitimate expenses of you know, an attorney pursuing that claim. You also have medical expenses, like if there's outstanding medical expenses, they have to get paid. Uh, you'll have, you know, sometimes liens, you have subrogation issues, all of those kind of come into that, you know, those things have got to be paid. All right. So all of that being true, sometimes you, at least back when I was practicing, it seemed that some lawyers would not to borrow the wrong term, but structure a settlement that had all of these costs and fees and all to make sure that the child's net was just under $15,000. Yeah, I've seen that as well. That's <laughs> shocking. Uh, yes, I mean, those are cases that tend to get a little extra scrutiny 
because they're, you know, you, you, you see the child's all of a sudden getting $14,999.99, and you go, let me look at these numbers again. And if they make sense, they make sense, but... That is correct. But If they don't. And, and what you'll sometimes see is you'll see all of a sudden parents coming in saying they want their uh, loss of services claim. So they're wanting money out of the child settlement too, and that's dropping that amount below the, the 15000 mm, Okay. Now, now, now you might not approve the compromise. Correct. And, and I think one of the interesting things, and I think sometimes maybe possibly attorneys don't understand this aspect of it, is if a compromise comes to me, um, I'm not sure I get a line on a veto. I think what I have the authority to do is approve or disapprove the settlement, period. That makes sense. Now, I think in a hearing, I can ask questions about it, and maybe the attorney revises their petition. As they say, may see what the way the wind is blowing. But as a rule, I think if someone's going to hard and fast say, no, I want, I know this was a soft tissue injury, but I'm a reputable attorney and I should get 40%, you know, I have the ability to just say, I don't think, I'm not going to approve this compromise. And then they go, well, what's the problem? And you say, well, it appears that the attorney's fees, I mean, they can understand the way the winds are blowing, as you said. Now, do you require a hearing in all of these cases? I do. Um, I require, for a number of reasons, number one is I want to, you know, I want to make sure I understand what the settlement's about and make sure I understand the expenses. But I also do it for the benefit of the parents or the party petitioning because I want them to understand that by me approving this settlement, I'm, I'm closing the deal. Mm-hmm. Uh, so once I sign off on it and say this settlement's approved, they're not going to have the right to go back and sue on this claim at that point. I just want them to understand what this means and that these are this is the money that's being paid out and this is how it's being paid out. I, I just think it gets puts them in a better position of not saying that they went into it blind. As a judge who's looking at one of these settlements, are you also looking at factors like what's going to happen in the future? Um, like, okay, w- knowing what the injuries are today, are there going to be ongoing medical expenses? Are there going to be, is there going to be an inability to work in the same capacity that they would be? Are those are those things that are considered to also? Those would be factors just like in any other personal injury case where, you know, you, you, you represent an adult that's not incompetent. I think where it becomes a little bit difficult when you're dealing with a minor is how do you account for that money? Because once the money is in a conservatorship, you know, in theory, that's the child's money. It's not the parent's money. Um, I can't always say that I want a case to, I want the the child to reach maximum medical improvement before I want to improve a settlement. But there is some inclination on my part to know that all those issues have been dealt with. Because obviously a child, up until the time they're 18, they can't settle a case and they have statute of limitations post-18 in order to make that claim. Mm-hmm. You know, I want, I want, I want to kind of know that they're at least close. So as we wrap this up, let's be clear. In my case, because, you know, again, this is why I invited you because I have a case pending. In my case, they have settled. They think they've agreed on an amount. They want me to approve a settlement. I have the authority to approve the settlement, to agree to the compromise of the claim. But if the net to the child results in something that requires a conservatorship, they still have to come to you. Correct. They still have to come to us to appoint the conservator. If, however, they are doing a pure structure where it's 100% structure, it pays out after the age of majority. Mm -hmm. 
that does not have to come to you since the lawsuit was in front of me. If I approve the compromise, the rest does not have to come to you. Right. If the net settlement is going to be after you take out attorney fees, costs, medical expenses, and the structured settlement, if it's 15000 or less, then they can they can settle that case without becoming a conservator. Okay. Anything else you have? Any 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 other fun uh, bits of wisdom as in the world of compromise of claims and conservatorships for minors or wards? Learn tort law. Yeah, you, you were using <laughs> some of those magic words. Maximum medical improvement. <laughs> folks, this is Wade Paget, and we want to thank Keith Wood for all of his help and the folks in the probate court. We uh, they are invaluable not only to the citizens of the state but to the to all the other classes of court, and we are very thankful that they are willing to do all of those myriad of things that we ask that they do. So again, thanks, Judge Wood. Thanks for being here. Glad to do it. I'm Wade Paget. And I'm Tane Kell. Folks, as always, thank you for tuning in. Thank you for listening to the Good Judgment Podcast. This project was the brainchild of Doug Ashworth, the executive director of ICJE. Thanks and appreciation to Mr. Jim Henneberger and the entire University of Georgia College of Law. Without them, we really could not do this. And thanks to Mr. Stephen Turner and his company, Turner Up Media, who helped to edit some of our stupidity and awkwardness. Hey, but nobody can get it all. That's a good point. Tane and I are eternally grateful to the Council of Superior Court Judges who allowed us to lead new judge orientation for the Superior Court Judges across Georgia. And thanks to our NGAO graduates who've been willing to help with this podcast series. You know that these are our opinions and do not reflect the opinions of ICJE, CSCJ, University of Georgia College of Law, or anybody else with an acronym or alphabet name. Or anyone else for that matter. Contact us at goodjudgepod at gmail.com if you have any praise. And contact someone else with any of your complaints. <laughs> but seriously, we would love to have your feedback, both good and bad. Send those comments to goodjudgepod at gmail.com. And visit our website at goodjudgepod.com for outlines and more details about our podcast. Once again, I am Wade Paget, And I'm Tane Kell. And thanks for listening. Tane, I guess it's time to bang the gavel on this one. Any last thoughts before we wrap this session up? No, let's just turn it over to the studio audience and the crowd goes wild. Thanks for listening to the Good Judge Mint Podcast.